as I was getting uh, ready for this message, it struck me very soon, or very quickly in the preparation process that there's no way we're making it through these 13 verses. So my goal is to focus on the first temptation. We're looking at Christ's temptations. We're going to focus on the first temptation and then hopefully make this a multi-part message so that the next time I preach, we'll look at the other two temptations. So that's my word to you. Um, and so if you're wondering, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through, 1 through 13, you can scratch that out and say Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. So, From the Roman Caesars to modern day spy agencies like the NSA or the CIA, countries have sought to protect themselves and gain advantage over their enemies with the use of intelligence gathering, espionage, spying, clandestine services, even Sun Tzu, the Chinese military leader from 544 to 496 BC, wrote in his famous Art of War, quote, enlightened rulers and good generals who are able to obtain intelligent agents as spies are certain for great achievements. Uh, Julius Caesar uh, was known to have an elaborate spy network, as may, some of you may know, and even the Roman Catholic Church during the uh, Middle Ages had a spy team, believe it or not. In his article at the CIA's official website, Gregory Elder writes this, quote, it is operational and tactical, and uh, it is operational, I'm sorry, he tells us that while force is uh, important in military engagement, he says, quote, it is operational and tactical intelligence, not necessarily numbers, technology, or uh, that can have the most decisive Im- impact on how forces are employed and how success is achieved in wartime operations. In other words... Enemy intel, intelligence gathering, successful spy networks are vital to the success of a particular army, a particular military force. It's important for our government to protect itself. It's important for other governments to protect themselves through espionage. It has always been that way. Enemy intel is vital for the protection and military success of a given nation, and so it is with us, believe it or not, as Christians. The day you repented from your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, you walked out of Satan's prison camp, unshackled and free. But the moment you walked out of Satan's prison camp, you were handed the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the sword of the spirit, and the helmet of salvation. Why? Because now you are at war with the one you used to serve. Your loyalties have shifted completely, and instead of warring against your creator, you now war against sin and the spiritual forces of darkness. You are in an actual battle, a true spiritual battle. You have an enemy, a cunning, intelligent, ruthless, hate-filled, will-stop-at-nothing enemy. But sheer force will not gain victory over this enemy. We need knowledge about how he works, what his strategy strategies are, when he likes to attack, where he likes to attack, and how he likes to attack, and so on. Fortunately, we have someone who has gone into enemy territory and gathered intel for us so that we can know what our enemy is up to so that we might have success against him. Jesus, the very Son of God, through the narrative of his temptations, has given us enemy intel. We now know exactly what our enemy is all about, what his next move is, and how he will plan to attack us. But first, we probably should ask the question, as some of you might be asking right now, should we even think about or talk about the devil or his tactics or his strategies? I mean, let's just focus on Jesus. How about that? 
Well, I think the Bible gives us uh, plenty of precedent as to why we should focus some of our energy on understanding our enemy's tactics. Second Corinthians 2, 10 and 11, Paul says an interesting thing. You don't need to turn to these. I'm just going to reference these quickly. But Paul says an interesting thing. He's, he's, he's talking to the Corinthians who were, he's instructing to forgive someone who's previously committed a serious sin in their midst. And he's, he's telling them to forgive this person. And then he says in verse 10, anyone whom you, uh, you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For what? We are not ignorant of his schemes. We are not ignorant of his ways. Paul had knowledge of what Satan likes to do to upset the unity of a church, and that's what informed his instructions to uh, the Corinthian brethren. He was not ignorant of Satan's design. He had knowledge of them, and that's how he applied this teaching to the Corinthians. He says a similar thing in Ephesians, giving them the Ephesians, that is, basic instructions on Christian living. He says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and what? Give no opportunity to the devil. Paul knew that there's something in anger that it can quickly flare into unrighteous anger, even if it began as righteous anger. It can flare into unrighteous anger. It can cause bitterness, and Satan can work himself right into your life, uh, deconstruct your spiritual life, and deconstruct the unity of a church. He knew Satan's schemes, and so he instructed the Ephesians based on that knowledge. One final passage, now from the Apostle uh, Peter. He says this, writing to the church, verse 6 of chapter 5 of 1 Peter. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You have an enemy who hates you with more passion than you can imagine. And he wants to stop at nothing to destroy your life. To destroy the unity of this church. To destroy the unity among your brethren. To tempt you. And if you, after reading these passages, don't believe that you should have some knowledge of how he likes to work. So that you can have insight on what to do then you're, you're missing what the New Testament authors are trying to say. They are telling us that we need knowledge, we need enemy intel, and we have it right here. Now, when I am speaking of Satan, it's important to balance this out by saying it's very easy for someone to say and to blame all of their sin problems on, quote-unquote, the devil made me do it kind of theology. Uh, What I'm not saying here is that Satan himself is responsible for every single sin that you commit. James is clear in chapter 1 of James that your sinful heart often gets you into a lot of trouble. But the Bible is also clear that Satan is a prowling, like a prowling lion. He has schemes. He hates you and he wants to destroy you. The Bible has no problem attributing your temptations to the devil. And while we don't know at any time whether it's Satan himself or one of his demons that are tempting us, it doesn't really matter. The Bible attributes all temptation and all works of evil finally and ultimately 
to Satan himself. And which is why it talks like this. It talks about Satan being the roaring lion. It talks about resisting the what? The devil and he will flee from you. The, the, the New Testament authors have no problem talking like that and neither should we. Satan is real and he wants to destroy you and he wants to destroy me. But we have valuable enemy intel here in this temptation of Christ. And so let's look at this temptation of Christ and see what Christ gives us here. Valuable, valuable knowledge so that we can withstand the devil, so that we can stand against him, so that we can survive his onslaughts. Let's look at the setting here. We are studying the book of Luke in our uh, Sunday school class. And so a number of uh, people in here will know this context. But just so you are familiar with it, if you haven't been in Luke recently, what's happening here? We have just stepped back from Jesus' baptism. He was just baptized by John the Baptist, and he has received from heaven the pronouncement that you are my son. God has pronounced from heaven that this person, this Jesus of Nazareth, is God's son. And he's begun his ministry, and immediately after, at least in the text, immediately after this story of Jesus' baptism and this heavenly pronouncement that this is the son of God, the true son of God, we are given in Luke this long line of a genealogy giving all of Jesus' credentials to us that he is, in fact, not only the Son of God, but the Son of Man. He is, in fact, uh, a descendant of David, so he has the rights to the throne, and he is also a descendant of Adam. He is fully man. He is fully God. He is fully king, and he is fully man. And so now we're stepping into chapter 4, right after these things, and it says this, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, where he was baptized, And was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. One thing I want to point out, incidentally, but not so much, is that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus, the very Son of God, full of the Holy Spirit, is going to be tempted. Tempted to sin. Could he have sinned as the Son of God? No, he couldn't have. Were these real temptations? You better believe it. As fully human, Jesus felt the weight of these temptations. But he was full of the Holy Spirit, which is important for us to recognize because you might hope that the more spiritual you become, the more full of the Spirit you are, the less you'll struggle with temptation. Guess what? It's just the opposite. The more spiritual you become, the more aware of your enemy you become, the more strong in the faith you become, the more mature in the faith you become, the more you start sounding like Paul who wrestled mightily with his sin, the more you start to sound like the mature apostles who are talking about Satan being a roaring lion. They knew what it was like to feel that oppression, to feel that uh, uh, devil after them trying to upend their lives. The more you are full of the Spirit, the more mature you are, the more you will be a target for Satan's onslaught. So it doesn't get better the more full you are of the Holy Spirit. One is, can be full of the Holy Spirit and be, wrestle mightily with temptation as Jesus is going to do here in the wilderness. But before we even get to Luke chapter 4, we need to step all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy chapter 8. This is a very, very important passage because Jesus' response to Satan is very strategic in that it is coming from a very important part of Scripture. Jesus is not just winging out some verse he memorized 
in, in, uh, Bible school. Okay. Jesus is using a specific text for a specific reason that came out of a specific place in Israel's history. He's drawing it this first re, uh, response to Satan out of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And in order to get the full weight of what's happening here, I'm actually going to read all of Deuteronomy 8. So follow along with me. What, where are we at in Israel's story? They are about ready to go into the promised land. Uh, Moses is getting them ready to go into the promised land. And so he's going to give them this long bit of instruction. He's going to say a few important things about why they wandered in the wilderness and what God was attempting to accomplish among them while they walked in the wilderness. The whole commandment, now quoting in Deuteronomy 8, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, out of the mouth of the Lord. Mark that. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and of water, of fountains and of springs flowing out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of the hills you will dig, you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God in the good land that he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with all its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you, mark this, to do you good in the end. Very important sentence. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go up after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord's make, the Lord makes perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Jesus is going to take his response to Satan from this passage. That's not arbitrary. It's not accidental. Jesus is doing something specific by using that phrase. And let's turn back now to our text and say a few things about Jesus and about Israel. I want you to see the parallels between Israel and between Jesus so that we can set up this 
text and so that we can receive Luke chapter 4 the, meant, the way it is meant to be received. Think of this. How long did Israel wander in the wilderness? 40 years. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. Where were they? We've already said it. They were in the wilderness. In both cases, there was a need for bread. In both cases, it was God who led Jesus and who led Israel into the wilderness. In both cases, Jesus was the Son of God. Israel was the Son of God. As we just read in this text, the purpose of leading Israel into the wilderness was what? It was to test them. The purpose, especially as you see in Matthew chapter 4, 1, was to lead Jesus to be tested, that he would be led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The goal in Deuteronomy chapter 8 was that Israel would learn that man does not live on bread alone. And as we all know, did they pass that test? No, they failed miserably. They grumbled, and there was so much unbelief that the Lord had to discipline them several times. What about Jesus? What do we see with Jesus? Jumping ahead a little bit, verse 4, when Jesus responds to this temptation about making stone into bread, what does Jesus say? He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Where Israel fails, the true Son of God succeeds. Where Israel is tested and fails the test, the true Son of God succeeds. He has learned that man does not live by bread alone. Israel had failed that test. You could even say that Adam had failed that test. Here we have the true Son of God doing what Israel could not do, what Israel failed to do. And you might be wondering, that's great, Derek, but why does that matter? Because just like every other text in the New Testament, we must read that first as seeing, especially this one here, we must first see Jesus as the one who is our representative, who fulfills righteousness in our place. It was the Son of God who did what Israel did not and could not do. It's the Son of God who does what you could not do. He fulfilled all righteousness in your place. He has survived all temptation for you in your place so that he would have righteousness to impute to your account in your place as your representative. And he then died in your place as your substitute. It's only then that we can go to a text like Luke chapter 4 and understand how the story of Jesus' temptations are now applied to us. Without first establishing Jesus as our representative and substitute, we can't even get the plane off the ground in terms of our, in terms of fighting temptation. Jesus is first our representative. He fulfills righteousness in our place. He is the son of, true son of God who does what we cannot do, who does what Israel could not do. And so now we step into this text and now we step into this text to see what we can learn about how Satan tempts God's people. And we're going to learn it by seeing how he tempts the very Son of God. There's much here that we need to learn. So let's look exactly what's happening here. Notice that Jesus is hungry. It says, 
uh, when those uh, 40 days, he had been tempted by the devil and he ate nothing those days. And, and when they were un- ended, he was hungry. Now, it can mean that he literally ate nothing. Uh, there's also a text when it talks about in Matthew 11, when it talks about that John the Baptist came uh, eating and drinking, or I'm sorry, when Jesus came eating and drinking, but John the Baptist did not come eating and drinking. He uh, was not eating and drinking. It's not meant to be taken uh, in a literal fashion, in a complete fashion. John the Baptist was eating and drinking, but he was eating and drinking in such a way that it was very sparse, and so it appeared that he was not eating and drinking. So here's the case where Jesus may not have been eating anything at all. Or he could have been just uh, surviving on the things that he would find in the wilderness, which would have been very, very limited. In either case, he's going to be very hungry. So this temptation is real. The temptation for Jesus to get bread is a real temptation. He is starving in every sense of the word. He is truly hungry. Put yourself in this position of the Son of God. This is a real temptation. This is not just something that he could just kind of shove aside. That's no big deal. No, he's hungry. And Satan knows it. And so what does he say? Let's look at the the actual words that Satan uses with our Lord. Verse 3, the devil said, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, the if here, the conditional if here, implies that the answer would be affirmative. In other words, Satan knows who Jesus is. You find out in the rest of Luke that even the demons know who this man is. They know he's the Holy One of God. They know that he is the Christ. Satan knows who he is. What he's doing is he's attempting to get Jesus to doubt his own status as the Son of God and to to prove that status, to use that status as the divine Son of God to get himself some bread. But what's the temptation here? Those are the words. Those are the words that Satan uses. What's the actual temptation? What is Satan trying to get the Son of God to do? Let's think about it. What is he saying? He's saying, satisfy your hunger, O Son of God, by short-circuiting God's provision of your needs. By providing for yourself on your own terms and on your own timetable. Come off the hard road to the cross for a brief moment, stop the suffering, and provide some bread for yourself. Remember, Jesus would have been excruciatingly hungry at this point, so this is a genuine temptation. And also consider this. Was the need for bread a legitimate need? Yes. So Satan is exploiting a legitimate need, and he's wanting the Son of God to fulfill that legitimate need in an illegitimate way. That's all he's doing. It's quite simple. What he's doing. Just like Israel's temptation was to believe that God was not among them. That they were not his beloved son as they walked through the trials of the wilderness. Jesus is now tempted to doubt his relationship to the father. And turn to means other than trusting his father to provide for himself in an illegitimate way. See, God's plan for Israel was to walk them through the trials of the wilderness. So that they might learn a valuable lesson. What, what was it? That there's something even better than physical provision. Namely, deliverance from slavery and a relationship with the living God. God was going to do something very good to them by walking them through the wilderness. And even as he walked them through the wilderness, he did provide for them. As we read in that text. Bread from heaven and clothing that did not wear out. 
Satan is tempting Jesus right now in this text to end the suffering by providing for himself apart from the provision of his father. Don't trust the provision of your father. Provide for yourself. Get yourself a little comfort, Jesus. I mean, are you really the son of God? Should the son of God suffer this much? Get some bread for yourself. Satan wants Jesus to skip the suffering. Skip the wilderness process. You can hear him saying, use your divine power to provide some food for yourself. Feed your legitimate appetites apart from the provision of your father. Jesus, Satan wants Jesus to come off the road to the cross, a road that is paved with self-denial, suffering, and self-sacrifice, and comfort himself through illegitimate means apart from the, the father's provision. That's what he's doing. Get yourself some bread. You're suffering. Should you really be suffering this much? I mean, I know it was pronounced a while back that you were the Son of God, but are you you sure? Because the Son of God probably shouldn't suffer like this. You can almost hear it, how he will talk to you. How he'll speak to you. If you're a Christian, you probably shouldn't suffer as much as you are. Get Get some comfort for yourself. That's what he's doing with the Son of God. How does Jesus respond to this temptation? I just love the steadfastness of Jesus. He doesn't waver a moment and he is famished. What does he say? Verse 4, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, those of you familiar with Matthew chapter 4 and the other, uh, the parallel uh, narrative of Jesus' temptation you will be aware of how Jesus finishes this sentence. Man shall not live by bread alone, but what? By every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So we can know that that, that is the full statement that Jesus gave to Satan. Luke uh, gives us this portion of it for uh, a particular reason. But we do know that Jesus is quoting out of Deuteronomy 8. He is telling the, the devil that there is more to life than even bread. There's more to life than even your most legitimate need. Bread. Food. Provision. Jesus knew that he was God's son. He did not need to prove it on his own terms. He was living off of God's word and therefore did not give in to satisfying even his legitimate appetites through illegitimate means. Jesus, this is it, Jesus believed wholeheartedly that God was walking him through the wilderness in order to do good to him at the end, just like Israel was supposed to learn, but didn't. So Jesus could trust his father's provision, even if things at the time looked difficult. In his answer, Jesus is telling us that there are more important things even than food, which is hard to believe. Doing God's will, trusting God's word, trusting in his goodness and promises and obeying his commandments even takes precedence over eating. And you think I'm pressing this too far. Let's turn to John chapter four and see what and see how Jesus actually lived this out. This is remarkable. And those of you who have actually suffered some physical hunger because of fulfilling God's will and doing something you knew what was right, will have tasted what Jesus is talking about here. But let's look at what's happened. Jesus, 
is has gotten um, done talking to the the woman of Samaria, the woman by the well. And uh, it says in verse, he's gotten done with that, and now the disciples have come back. He was alone with this woman, and now the disciples are back. Chapter 4, verse, uh, 20, uh, verse 27 of John. It said, just then his disciples came back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. <laughs> so the disciples said to one another, did someone bring him something to eat? And he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. To Jesus, there was something even more deeply satisfying than his daily need for food. Does Jesus reject food? No, he doesn't. Mark chapter 6, he takes his disciples away because they were working too hard and not getting to eat. He takes them away from the crowd so they could eat. Jesus is not telling us to reject food. What he is telling us is you have to have your priorities straight or you'll be liable to temptation by the devil. Even food is subservient to the will and word of God. And this is so vital to learn because one of Satan's primary strategies for tempting you and for tempting me is to exploit your legitimate desires. Desires for food, for marriage, for sexual intimacy, for financial provision, for legitimate earthly enjoyment. And persuade you to value these things over the will and word of God. His plan of attack is very subtle. What about our temptation? How does this relate to us? This first temptation, turning back to Luke chapter 4. How does this relate to us? Here the Son of God is suffering yet steadfast. Answering Satan with a word about the word of God. Saying that there's things even more important than bread. The story of Jesus' temptation isn't only about stones and bread. And we would fail if we only stopped there. We would not gather the riches of this enemy intel if we only stopped there and said, well, Derek, I'm not tempted with turning stones into bread. I mean, so no big deal. I'm good. Okay. This story is not about merely stones and bread. What is it about? It's about provision. Provision of legitimate appetites. Satan is exploiting a legitimate appetite, getting Jesus, testing Jesus to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. And Satan will tempt us to fill legitimate appetites for food, provision, earthly enjoyment in illegitimate ways. In order to overcome these strategies, we must, by grace, embrace the truth of our identity in Christ and God's promise to provide for us now and ultimately in his kingdom. Many of our desires, many of our longings will not be fulfilled in this life and must be pushed to hope in the kingdom, as we'll see in a moment. Let's talk about some of these nitty-gritty, practical things. You might have liked it when we just were remaining a little abstract and talking about the devil and his temptations. Now we're going to get 
nitty gritty, talk about how Satan tends to tempt us. Let's start with the, the category of food. Start with the category of food. How will Satan get you and get me to take illegitimately in order to fulfill legitimate appetites? Well, I think one way would be binging and purging. One way you can indulge without the consequences, right? Fulfill that legitimate desire for food. Indulge in a way that is unwise and unhealthy, but do something in order to keep yourself with dealing with the consequences, at least not the short-term consequences of weight gain, long-term consequences of throat issues, other health issues. Obvious, obvious uh, way Satan will tempt us is with taking far too much food for ourselves. This comes by way of gluttony, and gluttony is not just merely eating too much at one meal, it's eating too much at all of your meals as a habit, overspending on gourmet food when you can't afford it, think organic, perhaps. Some people are breaking themselves so that they can have so-called uh, gourmet and healthy foods. They can't, prov- they can't uh, actually provide for themselves because Satan is tempting you to think that in order to really be provided for it and really to know that you're the, a child of God, you must have these delicacies. Perhaps he will tempt us to make our identity to be found in food and uh, find all of our comfort in food and build our life around it. Perhaps. As Christians, like the wandering Israelites, we have God, we have redemption, we have a tender, loving Father who loves us and who is teaching us valuable lessons that He's going to do good to us in the end. And we have an eternal inheritance guaranteed to us in the future. There'll be no shortage of food and no shortage of enjoyment, pure enjoyment. But like Israel, our path into that promised land is one of wilderness. Like Jesus, it is the path to a cross. God will provide for us, but it may not be with all the luxurious food that the world is building their life around. God will provide for us, but it may not be with all the money that you need to go to every fancy restaurant in town. But the Old Testament anticipates this road of self-denial for God's people and tells us that it may be hard but it is better than bowing to Satan's lies. Listen to this verse from Proverbs and see if you can hear it preparing you for this self-denial and for the goodness of it. Proverbs 17.1, quote, Better is a dry morsel with a quiet house. I'm sorry. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. You may be bringing a ton of money to your home in order to enjoy the most sumptuous and luxurious affair but you do it at the expense of your relationship with your wife and your children. Satan is tempting you to build your life around food. How do we overcome this? As we eat, we are shown by Jesus that the narrow road of the cross is walked by self-control, by trust that God will provide another meal, that there are more important things even than food, namely doing God's will. See, a truth that resonates through this entire temptation narrative that grounded Jesus while he was being tempted and that will ground you when you are tempted is this. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. You seek first God's kingdom and he will see to it that you are provided with everything you need. And you know what? The New Testament even tells us with things to what? Enjoy. God is a, uh, provides for us in abundant ways. Seek first his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Well, that's just a brief word about food. What about another legitimate desire? What about another legitimate desire? Marriage and sexual intimacy. You know, these things are not needed in order to live like bread is. But the desire for marriage and for intimacy are good desires. Paul puts them together in 1 Timothy chapter 4. When these false teachers come along, they're going to tell people to deny two things. Food and marriage. And you can be more holy if you do that. Paul says that's satanic. Deny marriage is satanic. Why? Because God created marriage. It is a good, God-given desire. It is legitimate. But Satan will tempt you to grasp it, to grab a hold of it in illegitimate ways. He will tempt you to doubt the provision of your loving Father and get you and tempt you to grasp for that good desire in illegitimate ways. Obviously, he does that with tempting couples with sex before marriage. He does it with tempting married couples with adultery. He tempts, uh, he's tempting all people, mostly men, but often more now women, with pornography. I think he tempts uh, discontent wives with romance novels. He tempts all of us to fantasize about lo- how life could be better. And one thing I think we need to consider and this especially goes out to uh, unmarried men and women, is one way that Satan will come and get you to grasp at a legitimate desire in an illegitimate way will get you to value marriage above all things in such a way that you're willing to be married to people you probably shouldn't be married to. And if you think that's a hoax, I've seen it multiple times in my life as a Christian. People who took this good legitimate desire and put it too high on the level of values, they put it as their supreme value to the point where then they got into relationships they shouldn't have been into with relation, with people they should not have been involved with and then finally married those people because they were so desperate for marriage. And that is how Satan is tempting you. That is how Satan will like to tempt those who are not married. And then oftentimes... It's led to disaster. He will tempt Christian couples, as we've already said, who are yet unmarried. He will tempt you to grasp at that good desire for intimacy too early. That you, and then you will then pay for that misstep later on in your marriage. Sisters who are married and un, uh, unmarried, Satan will tempt you to fulfill your desires for marital intimacy and godly uh, leadership by drawing... I I think I said brothers and sisters. I meant to say sisters married and unmarried. God will tempt you to fulfill your desires for marital intimacy and godly leadership by drawing you away to the fantasy of romance novels. You think this is silly. It's not. Satan wants to tempt you to grasp at this desire for godly leadership in your home, ladies. 
that legitimate desire to have a man lead and to care for you. And while he's sitting as a bump on the log on the couch, you're going to be drawn away to have the desires fulfilled elsewhere. Where? Romance novels, even perhaps Christian romance novels. So that now your desire is no longer for your husband. It is now for an ideal that can never, ever be met. And if you don't think that's serious, it can draw a wedge between a husband and a wife that ultimately leads to divorce. Satan is very, very crafty. In all of this, in all the things I just described, Satan is attempting to get you to believe that the Christian life isn't one of suffering and self-denial. Come, Jesus, come and get the comfort of some bread. You're suffering. Come, Christian. Get a little comfort with pornography. Get a little sexual pleasure with your fiancé before marriage. Does God really want you to deny these legitimate pleasures? Did God really say? God created sexual intimacy. Yes, he did create it. But in a fallen world, we may not have all of our desires met. And the path to glory is one paved by self-denial, occasional disappointment, maybe a lot of disappointment, and suffering. Listen, if Satan can convince you that the Christian life should be easy and comfortable, then he doesn't have to do much else. Because then you will be unwilling to deny self, fight sin, live with disappointment, all for the sake of doing God's will and looking to a glorious eternal future of holy satisfaction that we can't even begin to fathom. If Satan can convince you that you should have it easy, that if Satan can come along and say, if you are the son of God, comfort yourself with some bread because you shouldn't be suffering this way, then he's already won most of the battle. You won't be ready to fight. You won't be ready to deny self for the sake of Christ and for the sake of your own good, for the sake of my good. Well, let's finish by looking at two last categories. Let's talk about financial provision, shall we? This goes right back to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's look back there, Deuteronomy chapter 8. What was the, the temptation in the wilderness for uh, Israel? What was happening there? Like Jesus in the wilderness, God has a good plan for how he was going to provide for his loving, his beloved son. God had a good plan. He was going to provide for his son then while his time on earth and then ultimately in the end. And similarly, God has a good plan for how he would provide for us. It's through work. Scripture is clear that we must earn our living. But Satan will tempt you to fulfill this legitimate appetite for provision through theft by stoking a desire for more and more material wealth, dishonesty at work and on your taxes, discontentment, hope and financial security, thanklessness, boasting in our accomplishments and self-provision and looking down on others. This is what uh, Israel was going to be tempted to do. And so G, uh, the Lord warns them about this. Verse 11 of chapter 8. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I have commanded you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and, uh, and live in them, and have, when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. The temptation, one of the temptations 
for providing financially for ourselves, which is a good God-given desire, is to forget God after we have done that, after we have used the very powers that he has given us to do that, then to forget him, which is why then he says in verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and my might and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is to this day. The temptation will be for all of us in here, our relative wealth notwithstanding, that once we have our place to live and our couch to sit on and our TV to watch and we can kick back and drink a little lemonade, we forget God who allowed us to provide all those things for ourselves. That's what Satan would love to do. And he would love to make you more and more comfortable and more and more self-reliant so that he can get you to a certain point and he can push you off the cliff. Our, we have an enemy. And he's, he's prowling around like a roaring lion. But let's ask ourselves how we overcome this strategy. How we overcome this strategy. Again, this goes back to something we've already said. In Christ, we have this wonderful promise. And I've already said it. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Make it your priority to love God, to serve his people, to obey his commandments, to structure your life around his will, and everything you need, and then some, will be given to you. Also, in Christ, we know that we are only recipients of grace. God has provided us with salvation, with the ability to work and to think and to earn money, to pay rent, to build a home. And Satan will tempt you to think that you have provided all those things for yourself. But as Christians, we're promised that God will provide and not that we will have extreme wealth, but also that the road of the cross requires generosity and sacrifice. And it may mean a season of financial difficulty. It may mean when you're in seminary in the first year, you look at your tax returns and you look at and ask, how did we make it through? I'm not sure, but we made it. We will be tempted to expect for ourselves a cushy lifestyle if we're not careful to be wise to Satan's strategies. Well, let's look at finally one last category, and this is earthly enjoyment. I think this is an important passage, important uh, category to consider how Satan is going to attempt to deceive us and to tempt us to provide for ourselves earthly enjoyment. Let's look at Second Timothy or First Timothy chapter six. First Timothy chapter six. Let's look at what God says about earthly enjoyment. This is an amazing passage. Paul's warning the rich in this present age, which includes everyone in here. Relative wealth notwithstanding, we are, comparatively speaking, with the rest of the world, filthy rich. Relative wealth notwithstanding. Whether you live in Palo Alto or San Jose. And Paul tells us that let the rich in this present age, he, he says to Timothy, charge them to not be haughty. Don't be proud. We've already talked about that, didn't we? We looked at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Don't be proud. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Where should you set your hope? Set it on God, who is a stingy miser who never gives anything to his people. 
who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God richly provides us with things to enjoy. Just walking outside after a good meal, hand in hand with your wife, hand in hand with someone you care about, on the phone with someone that you love, whatever it might be, should indicate you indicate to you immediately that God is a God of pleasure. He loves to give delight and pleasure to his people. This earth is an earth full of legitimate pleasures. Unfortunately, so many of those pleasures have been twisted and distorted. But God richly provides his people with things to enjoy. Just think about it. Bike rides, meals with friends, camping and hiking trips, motorcycles, music, sports, and on and on we could go. We could list all of your interests and your hobbies and my hobbies and my interests and just talk about all of these things being legitimate enjoyments if enjoyed in their proper order and proper space. But that's just the point, isn't it? God's rich provision of everything to enjoy includes not only the actual object of enjoyment, but the ability in the context in which to, in the perspective from which to rightly enjoy that pleasure. It's not just the objects that Paul's talking about here. God just doesn't give you a bunch of objects to enjoy. He creates the very context in which you can rightly enjoy those enjoyments in their proper order and from the proper perspective. If our pursuit of legitimate earthly enjoyment becomes our top priority, we will never truly find pleasure in it, only a brief fading pleasure, because we have sought to enjoy those things apart from the provision of our Father and out of the context of the narrow road where the kingdom of God comes first. Things taste best when God is supreme in your life. The gifts of God taste best when God is supreme in our lives. Should we eat and enjoy? Absolutely. Should we wear our clothing and thank God for it? Absolutely. But we are to seek first the kingdom of God and these things in their proper order and context and enjoy in that enjoyment we provided by God. Let's uh, turn to Mark chapter 4, verse 19. This will be the last passage that we look at, but we are going to look at what I believe is the most frightening sentence in the entire Bible. The most frightening sentence in the entire Bible. Luke, Mark chapter 4. And how this ties into what Satan is trying to do right now. Not when you walk out of this room today, but right now in your life. This is the strategy that he is using. And he's having a field day with it in America. Let's look at Mark chapter 4 verse 19. What's happening here? This is the parable of the soils. And Jesus has just given the parable of the soils... And now he's going to explain the parable. Verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? He's talking about the sower who goes out and sows the word. And let's just let Jesus tell us what he means. The sower sows the word. This is when the, the preacher's job is really easy. When Jesus does the explaining, you just kind of tell him what Jesus says. You're good. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. 
the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves and they endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on, on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. And we're good Bible Christians. So we get the first one. But the cares of the world, we got that. And the deceitfulness of riches, we got that. We get that the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word. We get that. Here's the scariest phrase in the Bible, in my opinion. And the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. All Satan needs to do to choke the word out in your life is to take that hobby from number three and make it number one. That's all he has to do. That's all Satan has to do in order to choke the word out of your life and cause you to be unfruitful and not eventually and then enter into final salvation. That's all he has to do. Get that pro- get that hobby, get that interest, get that love for motorcycles or cycling if you want to apply it to me and make it number one in your life and your the word will begin to choke out because now you'll start to frame all everything around that desire and everything around that hobby and everything around that interest. And slowly but surely, you'll lose a taste for spiritual things. You'll lose a taste for obedience. You'll lose a taste for the will and work of God. And Satan will have done a big time work in your life. He is coming along and tempting you to provide for yourself legitimate desire for earthly enjoyment in an illegitimate way. One that is out of context of the kingdom. The desires for other things. Let that sentence ring in your ears. Let us let that sentence ring in our ears. Are the just the mere desires for other things supplanting our desire for Christ and the will of God? It's all Satan needs to do. And he is a student of human nature for these past several thousand years and he knows what he's doing well let's conclude this on a hopeful note how about jesus came through the temptation by keeping his eye on the truth that his father's word was more than even his legitimate earthly appetites He came through the temptation by recognizing that his father's discipline was out of love, not hatred. The trials and the difficulties of our life are not bestowed upon us because our father is mean, but because he loves you so much that he will not allow sin to gain an upper hand in your life. He will not allow you to become too consumed with this world. He knows what you need and how to give it to you. Jesus' hunger did not bring him to ask, is the Lord really among us, as Israel had asked years and years ago? Christ knew that his father had brought him into the wilderness to do him good in the end. As Christians, we will overcome Satan's temptations in the realm of provision and in the categories I just talked about by recognizing That our status in Christ provides us with the promise that God will always provide what we need. That a future of perfect provision is coming to all Christians. That the road to glory, though full of joy, is also marked with suffering and self-denial. And that tasting the satisfaction of trusting the word of God 
And doing the will of God is better even than food. When Jesus comes along and he responds to Satan and he says, man shall not live by bread alone. He's telling us that there's something even better than bread. Not that bread isn't important. But if we put the will of God and if we put the uh, word of God even above that, we will find that we are far less susceptible to temptation and that we enjoy the things that God gives us in their right context and for the sake of the kingdom. We have a kingdom that is coming. Often many of our desires will be pushed for fulfillment into that kingdom. We will not receive everything that we hope in this life. But there is a kingdom really coming. It really is coming. Let's pray for eyes to see its reality. That we may long for that kingdom and long long to be provided for in that kingdom so that we will not give in to the temptation of our enemy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a... It's hard to hear sometimes what Satan's strategy is. It's hard to have our weak spots and our blind spots pointed out. God, I pray that this word would benefit us this morning. I pray that this intel that we have from Christ walking through the wilderness would be beneficial to us. We'd use it and we'd look forward to that kingdom. We would trust you. And then we would rejoice when we see your promises fulfilled, that you do provide for us not only our needs, but richly things to enjoy. God, you are so good to us. Christ, you are so faithful. The gospel is glorious. You've promised us eternal life in the future, but a little suffering now. But a little suffering, and then we will be with Christ in glory forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.